Podcasting worldwide from Vancouver, Canada. Welcome back to the Personal Process Podcast. The show that takes you through the growth, hardship, self-discovery, lessons, and stories of individuals who achieved success in their own personal path. Trust the process. Welcome back to the Personal Process Podcast. Today, we are very excited to have Jill Schiffelbein here. Jill is an award-winning business owner, author, and recovering academic. She has taught business communication at Arizona State for 11 years. She's also analyzed terrorism messaging in the documents and helped provide counterterrorism messaging strategies to the military. She was a pioneer in the online educational space, which I'm sure a lot of colleges are grateful for because without her work and her other peers' work in this field, they would be at a little bit of a standstill at this time. Um, beyond this, you know, we talked about the fact that Jill was an entrepreneur. Her first business was called The Impromptu Guru, where she helped individuals develop their public speaking and presentation skills. And she is currently running a business called The Dynamic Communicator. This focuses on helping communications strategies with organizations to help the online digital communication world, help attract customers, increase sales, retain clients. And one book that she has that I think is a must-buy for a lot of individuals in this field is called Dynamic Communication, 27 Strategies to Grow, Lead, Manage Your Business. And it hits stores in 2017. So if you haven't got a copy yet, you might need to get one after this podcast. Um, awesome. Jill, is there anything that I didn't miss or you'd like to add on before we get going? Let's see. I am an avid crocheter, a fan of bourbon cocktails, and cannot wait to be traveling the world again, much like everyone else. <laughs> oh, man. I, I love it. And yeah, I, I wonder if that day's even going to come now. It just seemed like it's going on forever. It's a year now. Um, Jill, you know, I had one question, you know, before we even get into this, you know, with your work analyzing terrorism documents, I'm wondering if there was any strategies that kind of surprised you that you think may be able to even be utilized in a business sense, because, you know, with a lot of terrorism organizations, the way that they communicate with their members, they can pretty much motivate them to do a lot, you know? So I'm wondering if there was anything that you got from that. That's a big question right up front. I'll take it. I I love cutting right to the chase. It makes me happy. So this was done back in 2006. So just to contextualize, in 2006, social media was not huge, right? It was pretty a newborn infant at that stage in many ways, especially compared to what it is today. Video communication, like we know it today, did not exist in mass. And so we worked as a team. I was part of a team that partnered with West Point and we obtained over 200 pages of terrorist training documentation that was translated through military channels um, and then given to us. My job was not only to run it through a software program for text resonance analysis that matched words and thematic things, but I sat there and hand-coded every single page to try to discern not only the flow of communication within a system, so we can target it from sometimes a physiological standpoint, but then also the mental flow of information, like what are the strategies they were trying to do to get people on board? And we came up with three key themes, which I think are very appropriate to what you asked Parham about applying to businesses, which is legitimate. So first legitimating your cause, right? So establishing a need in business, that kind of 
isn't done in the same way as it may be done in terrorist training camps, but it ties to a bigger picture why, right? You legitimate what you're doing with a contextualization of a higher purpose. The next one is I hope what businesses are not doing, which is intimidate. And you can obviously see where in some of those, uh, you know, organizations, intimidation does play a role, right? But let's look at intimidation in a more positive way from a business standpoint is instead of intimidation, how can you show peer to peer to peer comparisons, right? How can you maybe challenge your people better? So just a slight reshift there. And then the third tenant was propagate which is how are you spreading the word about what you're doing? So from an internal uh, standpoint, you know, as a standard organization, how are you having people share about what they're doing? How are they taking pride in their work? How is the message getting out about what your business does? Wow, those are very big points. And it's interesting because I think for a lot of people who may have been in the same field as you, they would just say that, you know, you know, I may not be a fan of this. I'm not going to take anyway. But those are very big insights. And it's interesting how communication plays a role in that. And with that said, uh, Jill, I just wanted to transition a little bit to what are some strategies that some businesses or individuals are employing that aren't necessarily good? Because, you know, a lot of times, a lot of people try to get those good communication strategies, like nodding after someone makes a statement or repeating the phrasing that someone just made. But what are some things that really detract from messaging, whether it's from business or at an individual level? I think when you're looking at the bigger picture of communication, and let's go business first and then individual, at a business level, it's are you looking for short-term solutions or long-term solutions? Do you want short-term immediate spikes in sales from customers or are you looking for longevity? And what I find is a lot of businesses will see these strategies that work in the short term, right? We've seen the internet marketers all over the place, like get $100,000 revenue in a week. All you need (laughs) to do is create this five-step funnel and blah, blah, blah. If you're looking for short-term customers, obviously that's a strategy, but unfortunately a lot of those strategies are sold thinking like a long-term solution, Mm. and that's not the case. So it's really making sure that you're not approaching any type of marketing or messaging strategies from a fear-based perspective, from um, a supply-demand-based perspective, unless it is a genuine lack of supply, right? Unless it's genuine, you know, this is going to sell out in 24 hours again, and in two weeks, we're going to get another supply. You know, be genuine about that. Um, that type of thing. So those strategies are great for the short term. But one of the things I talk about, you know, in my book that you mentioned, but also when I work with clients is, are you potentially triggering any buyer's remorse, Mm. any consumer regret? And so to kind of overcome any of these things, like if you're not sure, like, oh, did I make the best selling strategy idea? Make sure you have immediate follow up communication with your customer already planned and not the BS boilerplate. Thank you so much for your purchase. We've received your order. We didn't even bother to change this template because we really don't care about you. I mean, that's what that's saying, right? And you need to really customize like, hey, thank you. Welcome to the family. Do something kitschy with your product name or brand, whatever it is. Throw out a fun pack. Point them to new information that they can learn to get them excited for what they've purchased. So really thinking short-term versus long-term. Make sure Anytime someone buys something, you don't want to miss, make the mistake of capitalizing on those feelings of excitement, right? It's like if you book a trip, like I just booked my first like international trip and it's in November. So, wow. you know, hoping everything will happen. I'm going to go to Egypt and I'm so stoked. And in booking that, 
the team that I'm going with is doing a great job of like periodically dropping out. Hey, look at what just happened here with the moving of, you know, the, the tombs of the mummies to everything. Here's a video to watch is doing a good job sustainably dripping things out. So I think we focus so much sometimes on a single message that's going to take to get to a customer to do one action, but then we don't think of what is the communication that we can be doing after that. That's really going to increase the longevity of that relationship. Absolutely. And I think, I may be guessing here a little bit, but is that what the term dynamic communication refers to and alludes to? That communication that is long-term and always evolving with the customer and life? What does that mean to you? To me, dynamic communication is about results, right? Mm. Because communication, the transmission of information or data from one point to another, um, you know, you can write the most perfect message in the world, dot every single I cross every T, you could put it through like some computer analysis tool, and it's grammatically correct and the most eloquently phrased thing ever. But if someone's not in the state of mind to hear your message and to really listen to it, it's going to fall flat. So dynamic communication to me isn't just about the crafting of the message, it's also understanding that dynamic interaction between your audience member and does that lead to results? Does that give you the long-term impact that you're looking for? Absolutely. It's kind of like throwing your fishing uh, vine into a pond where there's no fish or using the wrong bait. And it's an important thing because I think oftentimes a lot of businesses and individuals even, I would argue, try to just, you know, improve the way that they say things or improve their own messaging from their level. But if you don't focus on the end consumer, you know, you're not making it relevant for them. And ultimately, everyone wants everything relevant to them. And if that's something that we can't do, it's really detracting um, from a business sense. It's detracting from an individual level. And yeah, it's a very critical skill. Now, speaking of a critical skill, Jill, I'm wondering where this love of communication took place for you, because, you know, this is something I'm a big fan of myself. Mm -hmm. And I personally wasn't the biggest advocate for it as I am now. But I'm wondering where your story started with this. The the honest story, there's two sides to the story, and it started relatively within a year span. Um, Mm. The first one was my now late First speech teacher ever, Robert Tyndall, back in Pittsburgh, Kansas, small town, Kansas, is where I grew up. And I'll never forget as a, I don't remember if I was a freshman or sophomore, I don't remember that, but I'll never forget the lesson. We walk in there the first day of class and pardon my language, people who may be a little sensitive here, but he goes in and there's a chair and he picks it up and slams it on the table. So you can picture him doing the motion. So now let me enact it. He goes, Welcome, everybody, to this shit. I'm going to pick up this shit and put it on this shit and then take this shit and write on this. I mean, and was just like every (laughs) single noun he was using the word shit to describe. And this is small town Kansas. This does not happen, right? And even now, I tell people the story. They're like, what? I prefaced it. I warned you. But the point was that he told us that language is what people make of it. Words only mean something when we assign meaning to them. And that was the first time in my then younger life that I was actually confused and intrigued by a subject and really was like processing this. I'm like, huh, that's interesting. And then a year later, I was in a leadership position where I had to speak at this all school assembly to try to get people to, uh, you know, do a task to serve our community. And I spoke and people got up and they did things 
and let's not lie to a 16 year old. That's pretty intoxicating. Like I grew up a little tomboy that didn't have like a whole lot of power status. And all of a sudden I'm saying things, people are doing things and it was a power trip. Now, of course, I hope I've learned to own that in very positive ways, but the realization that words can do that for good or for ill was really what got me intrigued. So after you got this intrigue, what was your next step with this? Because, you know, I think, I mean, everyone can look at your website, everyone can look at your book. And this is a field that you're not only an expert in and know your stuff into it, but it kind of takes a big chunk of your life. So like, Mm -hmm. how did that path go? Is this where the impromptu guru started for you? It didn't start there. Um, mm-hmm. It evolved from there, though. I, I went to school at Arizona State University, where I later taught, started taking communication courses, fell in love with organizational communication and systems theory and a bunch of you know nerd things like that, which I adore. And then realizing, oh, here's how a single word can change an entire system. That's fascinating. Um, and then after that, grad school ended up teaching, uh, started teaching very young and fell in love with teaching. And so impromptu guru, the idea was to help people speak better because my first client that I got ever, um, gosh, back in 2004, five was an executive who wanted to speak better. And then it evolved into teaching his team to speak better. And I fell in love with it. So that's where that first business came about. And it, uh, it was a good learning experience. Absolutely. And just to clarify, Jill, so did Impromptu Guru happen after your time when you were teaching at Arizona State or were you doing that concurrently? Um, The majority of it after, but some of it concurrently. Um, I was still teaching business communication, had by that point developed hundreds of online classes. This was in the mid mid first decade of the 2000s. So well ahead of the time that we're at today, but it's cool to see how things have evolved for sure. And then really taking that and thinking, okay, I need to make a go of this business thing. So I taught as an adjunct on the side to pay the bills because having a safety net is a good thing, right? Um, Unfortunately, my journey took some negative medical turns. So I then went back to teaching full time to be able to cover those expenses. You know, we do what we have to do. It's not, it's not all pretty. Absolutely. So once you went into, you know, the entrepreneurship realm full time, you know, looking back now, I'm sure you can say that that was definitively the right thing to do. But would I be correct in saying that maybe there were some times that you maybe questioned your decision and second guessed it? Were there any tough times or stories that you can share with us? And how you got through that? You know, when I really think about the whole second guessing thing, I have not experienced that. And I oh. would I would really be honest and say that I have, but I can tell you, I think what has helped me the most is an unyielding belief in this is what I want to be doing. And this is a type of life I want to build. The work I may actually do may vary. I, you know, initially started out doing the consulting, decided this one-on-one coaching was not my forte. Like, yes, I could do it. I could do it well, but it did not bring me the satisfaction that I wanted in my life. And that's when I impromptu grew now just became a resource for people who want to speak better. Uh, All free resources, no paid resources. I just let that live on as a, you know, nice thing to the world. Tens of thousands of views still come in on YouTube every week with that. Great. Like let people enjoy that content. I'm happy that it's out there and I'm happy it's being used. But I wanted to evolve more into the keynote speaking and consulting side. So in my head, 
by this time in my career, I'd be speaking on stages of thousands of thousands of people multiple times a month. And even without COVID, that wasn't happening. I was doing one or two a month, but they ended up being smaller groups. So for me, it was never a belief, second guessing that I want to create a flexible lifestyle where I can be in control of my finances, where I can be control of my schedule. Um, I never second doubted that. But I will tell you, there was a time I moved to New York City because if you can make it there, you can make it anywhere. You know, in August of 2014, uh, woke up in a hospital bed after a surgery. They told me no cancer, no anything like that. Booked a plane ticket from the hospital recovery room. Two months later, lived in New York. Um, The smartest and stupidest decision I probably could have ever made. But, you know, I think it was like 13 or 14 months into it, had not gotten the traction I'd had wanted to get, had not uh, gotten to where I wanted to go, was realizing that if I was living in Arizona where I was living before or in North Carolina on the beach where I'm living now, like I could have been fine with what I was bringing in, but not like living in the heart of Manhattan. So it was that crisis of conscience. Like, do you believe that this is where you need to be, that you're going to get what you need to get by being here? And I went through everything and sold. I sold my racing bike. I sold any type of clothing that had a semi-designer label that had value except for like one purse and one outfit that I could keep for appearances, um, like went through everything I had of any value and just sold it all off to pay rent and to stay where I wanted to stay. And people, you know, they don't share all that stuff so much because it's ugly. I was fortunate enough to have a good credit score. So I had a credit card so I could still go out and keep up appearances, you know, back in 2015. But I'd come home and be like, okay, should not have eaten that side salad for dinner. What am I going to do now? You know, whatever it was. Absolutely. Jill, how do you get that level of conviction? Because, you know, the Personal Process Podcast, ultimately, I want everyone to figure out who they are as an individual and express themselves fully to their true nature. And how, how I just, how, what can people do to get that level of conviction, that level of belief? Because oftentimes, you know, when someone has a safe and secure job, a lot of them are trapped in there and they're kind of like that. Uh, what's that word? Before the butterfly, there is oh, the a cocoon. caterpillar. The, the cocoon. cocoon. Yeah, yes. they're, they're stuck in their own cocoon and they don't want to break free. But once that happens, it's a beautiful butterfly flowing around wherever they like that freedom. And I'm just wondering, do you have any tips and advice? Do people need to experience things or what advice would you have to give them, Jill? You know, I think when I look back, I'm stubborn as heck. Being an entrepreneur, stubbornness is a quality to a point, right? We always have to balance that out to a point. So I think stubbornness definitely helps. But what I think it is, again, is I focused early on and I feel that this was a mistake. It may not be a mistake for other people, but it was a mistake for me. I focused so hard on getting the perfect brand and trying to find my exact niche and where I fit and everything And I have four different revenue streams in my business now that are all under a communicative umbrella. But I had people tell me, if you're focusing that wide, you're never going to be really successful. Well, am I making multi-million dollars a year? No. Am I making an income that makes me incredibly happy and gives me the lifestyle and desire I want to be able to support myself and help people if I need? I am. And that's what I wanted. So I think it's for me, it was getting clear on what that end goal was of what I wanted my life to look like. And then early on, I think in most people's businesses, you take on a lot of business that five years down the road, you want to take on. Let's be honest, right? 
But being able to now be selective about what you take on and knowing that, you know what, this project doesn't excite me a ton. However, I know I can do well at it and it's going to enable me to renovate my kitchen and I really want to do that. Or it's going to enable me to go to Egypt this fall and I really want to do that. And so for me, it becomes finding a way where I can use my expertise. Like you have to believe in your expertise, right? I don't think I'm the smartest person in the world at this by any means, but do I know I have something to contribute? Yes, without any doubt. So take that and then find ways that other people can benefit from it and decide if it works for what you want at that time in your life. Wow, that's incredible. Um, You know, speaking on conviction and finding out who you are and all this kind of stuff, I think one of the biggest challenges to both of these points is the pandemic that we were, uh, what's it called, right hooked with. So yeah. <laughs> I, 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 I want you to tell me, how, how did you adapt to the circumstance, you know, especially with communication being various levels from nonverbal to paraverbal and, you know, just our voice when we're talking, you know, when we have to go to the digital realm exclusively. I would imagine that that would affect your business and the way that you presented yourself or provided some value for your clients. I'm just wondering if you can take us through that experience and kind of just to follow up, talk about some of the things you're doing right now with your online MCing, creating digital mm-hmm. events, and how individuals can get value from it. That's a plethora of questions, so I'll probably revisit them after. I love it. So when I miss one, and I probably will, just let me know. For sure. Uh, you know, I remember I was literally in the air to speak at an event in Las Vegas when the World Health Organization declared a global pandemic. (sighs) And so I, you know, text from the air, thank you, Wi-Fi, the meeting coordinator and said, I'm about to land. Do I come to the hotel or do I not? She's like, well, we're set up. So if you're okay coming, come to the hotel, you know, went and did that. Got out that same night, (laughs) booked an earlier flight, flew back to where I was staying at the time. And Within the next four days, lost about $200,000 of revenue. Wow. How'd that make you feel? Everything shut down. Uh, Terrified, right? I mean, you're paralyzed. I don't, I, you know, if someone could have that happen to them, um, unless they have millions or hundreds of thousands of savings in the bank, which is not my situation, um, what are you going to do, right? And so... My first step is I'm freaking out. I have a shoulder surgery scheduled for the next week. So I'm like, I don't, I'm not, I'm going to be like not able to do things for a while. And so I'm losing my mind. Let's, let's be honest. And what was so crazy in all of that time. And I think this is a big lesson on confidence and conviction as well is during that time, during those first two weeks where people are losing their minds for all different reasons, we all experienced different things. I had a friend call me up and say, you have to be thrilled about all of this business-wise. And I'm like, hmm. what? <laughs> like, no, like I'm, I'm, I'm scared. I'm scared for all of my colleagues who are professional speakers and that's their only revenue source, right? Like I'm terrified for this. She goes, you've been doing virtual events for over a decade. You're going to end up just fine. And I said, I'm like, huh. <laughs> I felt like the biggest idiot in the world. But to that point, it's when you surround yourself with the right people. And I didn't always do this. It took me years and years and years and years and years. And even then we still make mistakes and pick the wrong person sometimes. So you have to be good about getting them out of your life. When you're surrounding yourself with the right people, they see things that you're not able to immediately see. 
And this friend pointing this out, within 48 hours, I launched dynamicvirtualevents.com, launched a new website, had already secured something with a, a client. And now this is 60, I think 68.2%, if I remember the number exactly correct, because I'm a nerd, of my revenue so far for this year is creating, wow. producing, and then emceeing virtual events. That's that's incredible. And you know, it's a very good point because I've noticed even with myself too, I, I don't even remember some of my strengths when these catastrophic events happen. Mm -hmm. And just having that network to kind of talk to you and be like, hey, you know, you're good. It can really change <laughs> everything from 180 from the bottom to the top. And, yeah. you know, I'm, I'm kind of wondering a little bit, Jill, I, I want to go into a question on ways that individuals can network in a bit. But I was wondering, how can individuals utilize these online events to the best of their potential? Because I've been trying to do some myself, but uh, it's a little harder than you would think inside your head. So I'm wondering with your experience, if you have any advice. Yeah. Number one right now, if you're going to do an online event, how are you differentiating yourself from the majority of events out there that are junk? Mm. Let's be honest, they are. And I've been saying this for years, even before the pandemic, like a webinar is not a voiceover on a PowerPoint. Webinars should be interactive. If people aren't clicking on their keyboard every five minutes or so and interacting with you as a speaker, I don't feel that you're doing it right. That's my strong perception on it. Um, but that's how I'd been doing it. And then every single one of those clients that I had done presentations for three, four, five years ago were like, you did the best webinar we had. How can we, how can you help us now? And so it's really finding ways that it's not getting on and just having a free for all, have someone in charge, have a structured approach, have a goal or objective. Even if you're having social nights with friends have a theme. Maybe it's who can find the most creative recipe that uses carrots. Maybe it's um, everybody submit. I had a group of girlfriends who did this. Submit um, a favorite piece of artwork. I'm going to take the names off of them and show them on the screen. And we're going to guess whose is whose. And then we'll tell stories about it. You know, bring a travel souvenir and show it. Have something, a theme that is curated around it. Because when we used to meet in person a lot, you know, when we'd randomly meet people at bars, when we do things, we had a whole lot of stimuli around us to spur conversation, a whole lot. Now, when we're sitting at our homes, like unless my cat freakishly leaps up in the air and crosses the screen, there's not much that's going to happen in this background to bring in context, right? Like I could angle my camera up and talk about my piece of artwork. I could tell you the story about my chair and then we're done, right? <laughs> so having some type of theme is good. And I think now people are wanting interaction, but they also want to be entertained. Hmm. So find ways that you can make your meetings fun, add trivia elements into it, add wheel of chance, you know, the wheel of names.com. It's a great free website that anyone can use to do a raffle type thing. Um, have bingo challenges that do with different fun facts about people, not, Hey, go chase around people and see if you can find someone who has blue eyes type cards. But right. you get people's names on bingo and you actually try to get bingo with facts or trivia that's thrown out about them or your company's products or songs. Doing something that's not just having people sitting, but having them tactilely interact in some way, shape or form with your program or your event is going to change how their brains are functioning and paying attention. That's huge. And, you know, that's something that I was never able to think of. I, I'd consider myself a little bit creative, but these strategies that you mentioned, 
never thought in my brain, but I completely agree with you by having some sort of theme by bringing something that individuals can talk about and converse about critical. And just by utilizing those strategies that you talked about, such as the wheel of names Mm -hmm. for the raffles. Fantastic. So I think this may be one of the clips that I have to make in addition to a couple others, because this is just has too much value. Excellent. But um, l- let's talk a little bit more on an individual level, because mm-hmm. when I was interviewing our mutual connection, Mark Hirschberg, he was mentioning that although COVID had a lot of negatives associated with it, one silver lining was the ability to network much easier, grab a virtual coffee or even meet individuals a lot easier online because now everyone's at home. I'm just wondering, with your experience in communication, specifically in the digital sector, are there any secrets that you have that individuals can take away from this realm and apply it to their own networking strategies? I think the big thing is we now don't have to travel to get to meetings, right? So you can be more efficient with your time, but you also need to realize that all of us are sitting back to back to back to back to back meetings. So if you're going to have a network meeting with someone, encourage them, say, hey, I'm sure you're going to be coming from a call. I'm going to be coming from a call too. Why don't we both take our computers or phones outside? And we know there's going to be a little bit of background noise, but let's just sit outside and have this meeting. Or maybe it's a walking and talking meeting where you do a FaceTime. Again, use a headset if you're going to do this. Um, (laughs) But, you know, show your area and just get a visual tour. Change up the scenery a little bit from, okay, another meeting where I have to click yes on a Zoom link. Another leading yes, I accept start meeting. Yes, use Zoom application. Okay, sitting here. Change the status quo. That's what we do when we do in person. We'd go to a coffee shop or something like that to have our networking meeting. And even though that was the status quo for that, it got us out of our office right? It got us away from what we were doing. Do the same thing. Think of something that can take you away from that. And what I would also advise is instead of, again, just, oh, let me get to know you. Let's talk about things. Have some conversation starters. Go buy on Amazon conversation starters, card decks, and just agree that you're going to draw three random cards. And that is going to guide your entire conversation that there's no, I'm here to network, to get business, to get me a business, to get you business, you know, that like targeted approach. No, We care about relationships and we do business with people we know and like. I mean, that's one of the most probably overused phrases, but yet it's overused and people don't do it. They come up to you. Oh, hi, my name's Param. What's your name? My name's Jill. Oh, hi, Jill. What do you do? Mm. And I'm like, I I will respond. "Um, Well, right now I'm standing at a networking event. I'm breathing and I'm really eyeing that pastry (laughs) over there that I probably shouldn't eat, you know? And then if people respond like that in kind, I know they are genuinely there to build a relationship. If they get annoyed, they were just there to collect business cards. And I don't need to waste any more time on that conversation. So be a person who's there to build a relationship, not to collect a name. Absolutely. And I fully agree with that. You know, I think a lot of businesses nowadays uh, have realized that. I think before it was kind of like, okay, maybe we'll get a quick sale here. We'll maybe upsell something they don't need just to get a little bit more money for our revenue to hit our metrics. But now I think, especially with just the level of interconnectedness online, people are realizing that relationships are vital because, you know, having a sale of $1,000 may look good on the balance sheet. But if you can have that as a recurrent customer, have a $500 sale here, but have them for four years, having that, you know, yearly, that's way more money. And then you have that network effect, right? Because if you do injustice to one of your customers, whew, you just lost a whole lot of business. You did. And I think going into a networking conversation instead, um, if there's someone you're wanting to meet because you want them in your network, 
find something that you genuinely want their advice on. Most people are honored and thrilled to be asked for advice. Instead of, hey, I'd just like to set a time with you to pick your brain. I cannot tell you how many emails like this I get. Yeah. And it infuriates me. I'm like, no, that's not going to happen. If someone says, hi, Jill, I really appreciated your article on X. I'm struggling with Y right now in my company. Would you have five minutes to jump on a quick phone call and give me some advice on Z? I'm like, mm. absolutely. Here's my cell. Call me right now. The more wow. specific we can be with our requests, the more simple it is for someone to respond. You could you could tell me, well, Jill, what do you want to talk about on the podcast? And I'm like, uh, instead you're like, so when you think of your business process, what's one thing that you messed up on? I'm like, oh, well, that really triggers something. You know, you get specific with those questions and it really leads to better conversations. Absolutely. And just I just wanted to comment on that point with regards to uh, getting specific questions. It's it's very important because I think when you ask a very broad question like that, you're you're giving so much work to the person you're asking because you have to think, oh, okay, here and then I have to look there. What do I type? Mm -hmm. But if you just give a very simple question, I want this, this, this. Can you help? Yes or no? That's the only option that you have to consider. Very easy on them. You're doing a service for the individual that you want to get help from. And I think that's a very very critical point. Now, Jill, I know you have a lot of information to share with us, but I also know you're extremely busy. So I do not want to take away from too much more of your time. I just wanted to quickly ask you, you know, we we're talking a little bit off air with regards to wildlife conservation and your pro bono efforts in this area. I'm wondering why is this important for you? And what do you want kind of the world to take away from this? You know, I think None of us get to where we are alone. It doesn't happen, right? We had a mentor somewhere. We had a lesson. We had a teacher. We had family support, friends support, community support. I already mentioned a couple people, you know, friends in here now. And I always think it's important to give back. And that's, mm. that's I don't know if it's it's part of my upbringing, being raised in a small Midwestern town, like you, you were always involved in your community. But I think it's important to give back. And as you become more successful in what you do, and again, by, I am no means at the pinnacle of success or anything like that. So please don't let my like me have that ego because I don't. It's really when you realize that there is a need that you can help with and you have the time and the means to do it, why wouldn't you do it? And there's a couple of backstories um, that go along with this. But one of the biggest ones is I hear people say, you know, that's great. I volunteer, but I, you know, I don't have time. I don't have time. I don't have time. Well, we all have the same amount of time in the day, right? We decide what <laughs> we're going to do with it. Um, and it doesn't mean we don't have different challenges with the time, right? Everyone's life situation is different. But what I will tell you after someone in my field criticized me for how much volunteer work I was doing, what said, your business isn't big enough and you're not growing fast enough to be volunteer spending as much time volunteering as you are. And in fairness, to like to try to balance it out, this person thought very highly of me, thought my skills and intelligence and stuff were worth way more than what I was bringing in. So trying to take that with a grain of salt. But I said, I believe you're wrong. Hmm. And that year was my first year that I hit six figures in income. Wow. And this is when he was talking to me. And so the next year, that jumped to a quarter million. Wow. And 
I went back and I did, and there's an article on entrepreneur.com. You can look up my name on entrepreneur and then seed analysis. Like most people, when you get a new piece of business, there's that line, like, how did you hear about us? Like Google, I was referred, whatever. So, you know, I have a client now. Okay. So Mark, well, where did Mark come to me? Mark came to me from Helen. Oh, great. Referral. Check it off in a referral column. Yes. Most of my business comes to me by word of mouth. Good data, not great data. Well, Mm. okay, great. Helen, where did Helen come from? Well, Helen came from Peter. Where did I meet Peter? Well, I met Peter at an event that I did a volunteer presentation at and then built a volunteer product with because I was not doing anything else and I wanted to be doing something active. That has now led to six figures of business from this one volunteer project that I did. Granted, over a five-year period, but hello, like I'm not turning that down. I don't think anyone would turn that down. Turned it out that it was like 54% over the majority of my income actually came from volunteer or pro bono seeds that I had planted. So now that I've gotten to a point where I can be, I guess, more selective with where I spend my time. Um, again, not that I am like set for life by any means, but it's uh, I'm doing things that make me happy in a different way. So a lot of this has been around wildlife conservation with uh, working with a rhino. So you can look up Munu the rhino who I helped build his social media following that quickly surpassed mine. And I was a little bitter at this <laughs> rhino. <laughs> but I mean, he's, he's one of 70 male rhinos of his species left in South Africa, one of about 5,000 in the entire world. And he's way cute. So of course he's going to get a better following than me. You know, I can't be too mad For at sure. him. <laughs> For sure. And then, yeah, just before this podcast today, um, you know, I was out walking on the beach learning how to uh, analyze and track sea turtles nesting habitats so I can help protect sea turtles here on my new island home. Man, that that is incredible. That is incredible. And, and you know, it's it's beyond just even. Well, first of all, you know, the, the saying goes network is net worth. But it's so true. And if you're not giving yourself an opportunity to do things you're actually passionate about, to interconnect with people authentically, you're doing yourself a disservice. Because like you mentioned a little bit earlier, Jill, you know, if someone comes up to you and then you give like an answer of what are you doing? Oh, you know, I'm just sitting here breathing. And they just get annoyed by that. You're like, yeah. But if you're in a genuine conversation with someone, you're like, wow, this person cares about the same thing that I do. And they're fun. You know, let's connect. And that leads to another connection, leads to referrals. Very important thing. And then just one quick thing that I wanted to add for the listeners and viewers is when you volunteer, you also get happy. Uh, I won't get into the super specifics of it, but there was a study at my university and essentially individuals were either given a $5 bill to keep or a $5 bill where they can donate. And what they found is the individuals who actually donated their $5 bill were happier than the individuals kept it, which was kind of an interesting theory for me. But giving back to your community also gives to yourself in a multitude of ways. Um, yeah. So again, Jill, you know, really loved all the information you shared with us. Um, before we go to the outro of our show, I just wanted to ask you two questions. First of all, where can individuals find you? Where they where can they purchase your book? And after we'll go on to your one message to the audience, which can be anything that we talked about from the segment or anything you'd like to add that we didn't get to talk about. I'll leave I mean, the floor that, to you. You're opening up a big risk there. Pardon. Oh, man. That's all good. I enjoyed this whole time. Um, anywhere on social, I'm at Dynamic Jill. My last name is a bear to spell. Don't even try. Just Dynamic Jill <laughs> everywhere on social is the easiest. Um, the book's available at Amazon, um, you know, some bookstores, et cetera. Amazon's always 
typically the fastest uh, and available internationally. So there's that. Um, my one thing, my one thing is it is the most simple decision-making metric that I have. And it makes people think, wow, this is really how you process. But yes, a lot of the time it is. If I'm stuck on something, I have business hand and I have a happy hand. Is it good for business? Does it make me happy? If both are in the air, then fantastic. It's an easy decision. If only one is in the air, I mean, it better be up far enough that I'm getting, you know, some fun things happen in there. And if that's not the case, then why would you even consider doing it? And I think that's one of the things that I did not do early enough is really examine the why am I really doing something? And I think in the past few years, doing that more has really taken the business exponentially further, not only revenue wise, but within the number of people I'm able to reach. So really, you know, not to be too Simon Sinek like, right, but really evaluate your why and start there. That was incredible. I, I, I fully agree knowing your why and then that just the trick that you gave it is so simple, but I think you literally just saved me 10 hours a week. So <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it's it's silly. And I've, I've talked to my parents enough about it now that they'll be like, okay, so is your happy hand up? Is your business hand up? But it's, it's so simple. My little four-year-old nephew could do it back to me. And sometimes that's what we need. It's to slap ourselves with simplicity and be okay in using that as your initial litmus test. Absolutely. And it's something that I wish I learned in school personally, and hopefully some way in the education system, they can throw it in. Um, with that said, Jill, I just wanted to take the time to thank you so much for coming on to our show. Thank you for sharing all of your strategies from communications, how to network, to how to make decisions that will save me 10 hours a week. I, I really genuinely appreciate that. And yeah, I just wanted to thank you again. No, thank you so much, Parm. I'm so glad our mutual connected Mark got us together. It was a great conversation. Absolutely. Thank you. And uh, yeah, if you're listening to this, Mark, thank you for introducing us. We had a fa well, I had a fantastic time. I don't know about you, Jill. Two thumbs up, <laughs> two thumbs, five Perfect. stars. Beautiful, beautiful. <laughs> and now as we go into our intro or outro, I just want intro, outro. I just wanted to thank the listeners and viewers of the Personal Process Podcast, and we'll see you on the next one. Hey, everyone. Parham back after another amazing episode with another amazing guest. We hope we added value into your life so you could take the tips from this episode and fuel your process forward. If you enjoyed our episode today and think other friends or family members may also appreciate the lessons that our podcast brings, be sure to share us with them. Subscribe and rate our show so we know how we did. And always remember, trust the process. <laughs>